Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we are so lucky because we have Max Neeson here with us. And the reason why, Max, we really wanted to talk with you was because we love talking with you. You cover healthcare for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, but because Ford is in discussions with its union over the cost, the, the surging costs of healthcare. And the reason why this was interesting, this comes, uh, the potential bill is likely going to exceed $1 billion for the first time next wow. year. So this is this is a huge cost, but it's not alone that Ford is dealing with it. This is something that a lot of companies are dealing with. Can you just first frame the issue of just how big of an issue healthcare is using Ford as a lens? Sure, absolutely. So so it's definitely an issue for, for just about any large employer, uh, growing healthcare costs, growing drug costs, you know, prices and spending continue to rise, although at a slightly lower rate than, than people forecast in the past. But it's particularly acute for Ford and other companies that have uh, large union workforces because those unions negotiated, have negotiated over time, uh, really incredibly generous health coverage. Uh, you know, basically more generous than, than just about anyone else gets anywhere. Um, and then kind of the point of contention this time is that while those union workforces gave up on a lot of other things uh, back over the financial crisis, uh, the thing that they really held on to um, and kind of used as a, a justification for sacrificing elsewhere was those incredibly generous healthcare benefits. So now, of course, um, you know, they get you know, these things don't get cheaper. They just get more expensive <laughs> as people age and as the cost of healthcare increases. So you come to another detente. So Max, maybe you can just give me like a healthcare 101 here, just because the a, a number I see in a Bloomberg News article has really struck me that nationwide health expenditures are expected to grow by 5.5% annually from 2018 to 2027, more than twice the rate of inflation. So just real simply for our audience and for me, uh, what are the main drivers of that growth? I mean, that, that's a question that depending on which kind of actor in the system you, you ask, you'll, you'll get a different answer. But uh, the general kind of the biggest thing as always is that it's it's the prices. Um, then the United States, just because of the system that we have that's kind of fragmented between employers and the government uh, with kind of, you know, split negotiating power depending on what you're talking about, whether it's drugs or hospital services, uh, that no one can kind of push back and aggregate against those. You get prices that rise at a far greater rate of inflation in everything, uh, not just in drugs where you, where you see a lot of the coverage, but really in, in hospital services as well, um, with just very little restraint, and that's set to continue. 5.5% is actually not as bad as what we've seen at points in the past, though, which kind of puts the problem in perspective uh, of how much... <laughs> The cost of healthcare has gone up over time. All right. So in the U.S., workers with health insurance contribute an average 18% of the premium for single coverage, 29% of the premium for family coverage. How much has that gone up over time? I mean, essentially, do you foresee a time when companies won't provide health care at all? Uh, you know, I, I think because of the tax advantage of providing health care, it's basically a way to provide more generous benefits or basically the equivalent of higher wages without paying as much tax, uh, as long as that tax benefit exists and we don't have something like a Medicare for All plan, you're still going to have pretty generous uh, employer coverage and an incentive to provide it. 
Okay, so if that's the case, then is it a false argument that the rising cost of healthcare is the reason why we've seen a shift to the gig economy and away from full-time employment with benefits? I complicated in the sense that, you know, even though that that share of premiums has stayed relatively constant, what has gone up is deductibles. Uh, basically that people have to pay more out of pocket and face less of that premium cost. So just more, you know, the costs have been going up just much more. It's just been shifted in a different way. As opposed to the shift to the gig economy, um, you know, it'd be one thing if, if the ACA were working, you know, on all cylinders as intended as kind of a fairly priced and, and stable alternative for people that want to work for someone other than the large employer. And, and to a certain extent, you know, it continues on, but... If you fall into, you know, the kind of middle category where you make a fair amount of money and don't qualify for subsidies, then it's basically unaffordable and you're, you're kind of out of luck. So it's uh, it's still a system with uh, a lot of compromises, a lot of people to get left out. So just real quickly on Ford, when they sit down with the UAW, how's that going to go? Are they going to trade off, you know, salary increases for keeping health care? What are companies doing these days? I mean, I, I think both are going to attempt to give away as little as possible. That's the point of collective bargaining. You know, it's a, it's a great success of the unions that they've managed to negotiate these these really generous health benefits over time. Uh, but, you know, you always have the ar- argument on the contrary from Ford that, you know, if we want to stay competitive with other countries, um, we're going to have to, you know, labor as a, in terms of labor costs, we're going to have to see some sacrifice from both sides. So it's going to be, a, obviously, as always, a really difficult negotiation. Um, and they really aren't going to want to, I mean, if you want to make that comparison that most Americans pay 18%, uh, cost sharing for auto workers is a fraction of that. So very different. Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us. Max Neeson is a biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist with Bloomberg Opinion. Well, people, when you look around the global economies, you certainly have China uh, slowing, although there may be some green shoots. And then we got some data last week uh, about how weak things are in Europe and how the ECB is responding. Of course, we had some data come out today that shows inflation remains muted here in the U.S. amid a a relatively uh, decent economy here. But people still persist in talking about a recession risk for the U.S. market uh, at some point over the next 12 to 18 months. I think our next guest can provide some perspective. Uh, Joel Stern. Joel is chairman and chief executive officer of Stern Value Management. He joins us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, uh, welcome to Bloomberg. Uh, You just raised before we went on the air here your thoughts about kind of how the global economic environment looks, recession risk, that type of thing. How do you see it from from your perspective? I don't see a recession at all. And the people who say they see a recession must have different glasses than I do. Uh, The major reason for it is this. Uh, Just uh, last week, uh, Krugman, Nobel Prize winner, said, I see a recession on the horizon. I'd like to know what his indicator is. Let, Let me explain. Even if the number was wrong, back in December, we had 300,000 new jobs created. Let's assume it's off by even 100,000 because of all kinds of seasonal things. Do you think businessmen would be hiring people at that pace if a recession was just around the corner? No way. Not only that, take a look at where long-term interest rates are. 30-year government bonds are yielding 3%. What's that all about? You know what that tells us also? There's no inflation to talk about either. And you know, when people take a look at inflation, they're leaving all kinds of things out that bring the inflation rate not at 2% down to zero. Well, 
I'm wondering if yeah. we're looking at it through the wrong lens. If okay. people are looking for another recession, big R, akin to what we saw in 2008, and if they're looking in the wrong place, because that's not what we're going to see this time. If instead we're seeing sort of rolling recessions through different industries, the oil, mm. the healthcare, you know, mm -hmm. whichever is poised to go next. Could be, could be. But, you know, one of the interesting things about our economy is not just what we would call high technology. Think about the discoveries that we're learning now from the pharmaceutical industry, industries that we had given up on. People would contract that disease. They were finished. There was no chance for them at all. I've just been reading about uh, what's going on with regard to cancer technology. I call it cancer technology because when people contract cancer, they're not going anywhere necessarily. They're going to get better. Okay, and those types of things are creating a tremendous amount of jobs. Well, how concerned are you about when you think about some of the technologies you, you just mentioned? The competitive situation with China. We have trade negotiations going on right now, and right. a lot of that, a lot of the real hard sticking points are some of those hard issues about technology and, and data integrity and all that type of espionage, corporate espionage. And it seems like uh, in order for the U.S. to maintain its uh, current position. Maybe we need some tougher trade. Uh, well, first, the, ja the Chinese situation regarding high technology, that's been with us for maybe decades, okay? And look where we are. We're doing very nicely, thank you. They're not doing well for a different reason. They engaged in what the Japanese did back in the 1980s. They spent money building cities, building buildings, and there was no market for it. In other words, their economy overstated how well they were really doing. They were creating monuments. They were not creating real business there. And what's happened now is they've returned to a more normal level for themselves. I still think that the 6% figure is way too high. I'll make you a bet if they do revisions properly, uh, maybe our Commerce Department is doing the, the, the calculations, uh, you'll find their growth rate is closer to 4.5%, not 6.5%. So as you, as you think about managing money then in this environment, mm -hmm. if you view the, the U.S. economy as really being quite robust and, and its fears of, of a recession considerably overblown, is this just U.S. equities all the way, NASDAQ in particular, because of tech advancements? Our stock market, about measured by the Dow, fell over 4,000 points over the last year, remember? Mm -hmm. It dropped down to 22,000 from 26,000 plus. And people said, oh my gosh, a recession is coming. That's not what was happening. We are not accustomed to having the kind of negotiations the administration has with China, for example. And the Chinese, that's dependent on how we're doing well with the North Koreans at the same time. My view on all of this is that we, we are accustomed to having it our way. And we have a president who is certainly accustomed to having it his way. And I think his strategy for getting them to relax the restrictions they have on our trade is going to be very successful. Now, that's just my guess. Within, say, four to five months from now, you wait and see there'll be a major concession by the Chinese and, of course, by the North Koreans but, as a result of that. So do you think that that will directly lead to a rally in U.S. equities yes. that people are not pricing in right now? Without question. Okay, so you think that that will just price that in, and it, are you worried at all about some of the external factors that uh, Fed Chair uh, Powell has been talking about, particularly Brexit, especially today, as we see Theresa May on the brink of losing confidence of, of, of her constituents and possibly losing office sooner than later? Uh, you know, How much does that bow into the U.S. economy. I feel sorry for her. 
She okay. was in you the middle. You feel sorry for her, but not for the U.S. economy. I, well, <laughs> l- listen, uh, what, what really happened here was that the British said, what, we're going to have a million refugees coming into our country? Incidentally, in my view, Angela Merkel political career is over. And what cost it? Exactly what's led to this Brexit issue. The Brexit issue is very simple. If you're going to have these people, a million, say, two million, coming in like that, what's it going to do to your job? What would you do? How would you want your politician to vote for this? Okay. Right. And half the, half the country voted for you know, Brexit, the other half to remain. And I agree. They're as polarized as we yes. are in this country. Right. They should take a look at us and say, ooh, we don't want to become like those Americans. But it's too late. Well, how concerned are you about just the whole European Union issue, Brexit, as it relates to kind of how you want to position yourself globally investing? Because it seems like it really is an issue for the European Union. I've heard money managers say the P.E. ratios there, their market to book ratios are much lower than ours. There's a good reason why. Look what it's done to their economy. Look what it's done to their prospects. I wouldn't be investing in, in, in the European Union at all. Okay. There are so many other places to invest where the prospects are so much better. One place outside the U.S. that you like? Uh, Israel. The Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. And Israeli companies. There are over 150 Israeli companies that are traded on NASDAQ. You want to buy those companies. Joel Stern, thank you so much for being here with us. A pleasure. Joel Stern is Chairman Chief Executive Officer of Stern Value Management, joining us here in the Interactive Brokers Studios. He also is an adjunct professor at six business schools, uh, a variety of for them, including uh, Columbia University and University of Chicago, Carnegie Mellon. I could go on and on. It is so interesting to me, Paul, that when we talk about voting and we talk about how the 2020 campaign is heating up, certainly a number of candidates, uh, Joe Biden is on on the docket to decide whether or not to run uh, for the 2020 presidential election in the United States uh, any day now. Question becomes, why can people not vote on their phones? Why can they not go (laughs) online and vote? Why do we have chads, hanging chads, and people waiting in lines to go around the block? And, 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 you know, are are we staffed enough at certain places? This is a perennial question, and uh, it's really important to address. Luckily for us, we have Bradley Tusk here. He's Chief Executive Officer of Tusk Philanthropies, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Uh, Bradley obviously has had an extensive career on a number of different campaigns as Deputy Governor of Illinois, Chuck Schumer's Communications Director. Full disclosure, he did serve as Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager, uh, and Mike Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, which owns us. So, uh, Bradley, thank you so much for hey, joining here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, let's just start with what is Tusk Philanthropies, and how does it relate to this sort of perennial issue? Sure. So, uh, my family foundation. I got really lucky in that um, when I, after I finished working uh, running Mike's campaign, I took a chance on this little-known startup called Uber. Uh, I started working on all their political problems. Never heard of it. Yeah. And took my fee in equity. Uh, so that's done pretty well. As a result, now there's Tusk Philanthropies. So we focus on two things. The kind of easier one is hunger. So we fund and run campaigns in states around the country to create breakfast after the bell, to create universal school breakfast. The harder one is mobile voting. Um, what I learned from the 20 odd years that I spent in the trenches of politics is, with the exception of Mike, and I say that even when I'm not on Bloomberg Radio, um, 
I've yet to meet a politician where every single policy decision is not governed solely by the political inputs. Uh, most politicians just can't live without the validation that comes with holding office. It'd be like asking us to stop having oxygen, right? So um, they're never going to do anything that's not in their political interest. So let's just say, as an example, you're a Republican congressman for Florida. Um, turnout in your primary is 12% because of gerrymandering, the primary effectively is the general election, and NRA voters make up half that 12%. You may know that an assault weapon ban probably makes sense, but you're never going to be for it because you're not going to risk alienating half of the people who actually vote in your primary. What if turnout were 70%? All of a sudden, everything would flip, and then the politics would be that if you didn't vote for it, you would lose your job. Um, the reason why turnout is so low is we have a system that was built, as you were saying, for an agrarian economy 250 years ago, um, and it's never really been updated. And so as a result, um, no one really turns out, and the incentives that politicians get are really disparate and different from what most people actually want. Uh, and what I learned when we were trying to figure out how to make ride-sharing legal all around the U.S. for Uber is – when you give people the ability to advocate from their phone, they'll do it. So the millions of people who reached out to regulators and politicians and said, let ride sharing exist, you know, they don't vote in primaries, right? Because they're not going to figure out what random Tuesday is the election and figure out where to go and wait in line and deal with all that stuff. But when it was like, oh, I could just press this button from my phone from inside the app, they did it. And the final piece is blockchain, which now enables you to really move data from point A to point B in a secure fashion. So in putting all those things together, it occurred to me, hey, maybe there's a way to use all of this to create mobile voting. So kicked it off out of my foundation. Um, last year, started working with the state of West Virginia. We did it for deployed military, both in their primary and in their general election. Uh, we kind of put everything together and paid for the state's cost so there's no taxpayer expenses. Went really well, so we've been talking to other jurisdictions, and last uh, Thursday, a couple of days ago, we announced that Denver is the next jurisdiction to do this, first city in, in America to do it. Uh, we're really excited, so it'll take place in their May municipal elections, and then if there's runoff, it'll happen again in June. So what's really been the gating issue to, for adoption? I mean, I, you know, for as long as I've been voting, I walk into this little booth, I put the little, you know, uh, you know, apron behind, kind of push yeah. in the buttons. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yes. So what really is the gating issue? Is it the technology wasn't there? Is it the that technology wasn't there? I think there's sort of two problems. So there's the day to day stuff of people who say, oh, maybe it's not tested enough, maybe it's not safe, or you have the incumbents in the election industry just like you know, taxi with Uber or hotels or Airbnb, and they don't want to be disrupted either, so they try to fight it. Um, that stuff we can work through pretty well. The real problem is going to be everyone who has power is not going to want to make it easier for them to then lose power, right? And this could be whether you're an elected official, uh, the NRA, teachers unions, whoever it is, if you figured out how to game the system and how you can take these low turnout primaries and, and use them to your advantage so that politicians do what you want, you're not looking to then give away all that power. So then how are you getting this sort of blockchain experiment yeah, uh, rolling it, in different places? Totally. So a couple of things. One is, you know, there are a handful of elected election officials around the U.S. who are willing to give it a try anyway. So we just had the the city clerk in Denver, secretary of state of West Virginia before that. Uh, and we keep talking to more and more people. But ultimately, what I've got to do is sort of prove that this works and prove that it's safe. Uh, what I learned in, in my experience in tech is when you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in, right? So if I can spend the next five years 
convincing jurisdictions to try it, funding their elections, showing the world that it works. I think about my daughter who's 12, when she's 18, she won't accept the notion that you can't do this. So have you found anything interesting, at least with the first uh, experimental run here, as far as what turnout is or how the voting actually is? Yeah, so it's so far been limited just to deployed military because it's really hard to object to the fact that people who are literally putting (laughs) their lives in the line to protect the right to vote, a right that we don't even use, um, their votes never count. on your ballot from Kandahar and it shows up like a month later and just goes right in the trash. Um, so what we have found so far is people are taking advantage of it, one. Two, at least in a system where we're able to verify who everyone is because they already have a military ID, it works really well. Three, we ran four separate security audits of West Virginia after we finished it and everything came back clean. So what that all says is the concept works, keep expanding. Uh, my hope is that the next constituency we work with is the disability community because a lot of people who are blind or deaf have found that their phones provide a lot of things to make their lives a lot easier. So we've been talking to these different groups like the National Association for the Blind who has said, yeah, voting's especially hard if you're blind. You don't even really have secrecy of the ballot because you're trusting the person there to reflect, have their reflect, do what you said, right? So they were thrilled. Um, so I'm hopeful that in November we can at least get one jurisdiction to expand it to both military um, and parts of disability and then come 2020 really hit the ground running. Wow, that is fascinating. I mean, this sounds like a technology that we've been waiting for for a long time. It sounds like technology that should have been available 10 years ago. Yes. yes. Yeah. And the, the implications are, are just massive, I think. Uh, Bradley Tusk, CEO, Tusk Philanthropies, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thank you very much for joining us. Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative for President Trump, who has been uh, representing the nation or helping to uh, negotiate the trade pact with China, uh, saying now today that getting a trade deal with China is a big if. This headline crossing minutes ago, you could see the Dow Jones uh, taking a leg lower near session lows, although only down uh, nearly four tenths of one percent on the day. So uh, not a huge decline and largely led by Boeing, but still taking a little bit of a dip lower. My question is, who trades off? of these and these sort of you know it's on again off again headlines every single day with trade giving very conflicting messages how does an investor invest around that joining us now to discuss chad oviet he's director of investments for huntington private bank joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studios so chad let's start there i mean what do you do with these conflicting headlines on trade first off we would advise our clients to have a much longer outlook than the next five minutes ten minutes even the next headline whether it comes tomorrow or the next day bold (laughs) <laughs> Go on. We want to make sure that we keep that outlook, focus our clients on long-term investing, really investing for what it is that they're trying to achieve. These these intermittent headlines or the news of the day plays into our thesis a little bit for 2019, though. So what we were seeing and what we agree to is that we've, we've peaked. Uh, more than likely, it was 2018 peak for GDP and earnings, uh, but we haven't stopped growing. So we have a peak and we're at a point now where we're seeing this consolidation. And we're seeing consolidation from a a soft GDP start in 2019, lower earnings estimates for the first quarter of 2019, but we ultimately see that kind of troughing this year and then rebuilding towards the end of the year. So we're constructive for the rest of this year on US equities, even with the headlines that that come out from time to time. Obviously US-China trade deal is a big one and could 
ultimately derail our thesis to a degree or bring some of those assumptions down. Uh, but currently, we still have the U.S. Uh, with the S&P 500 ending the year at about 2,900. So I guess uh, in, in your scenario, no recession risk on the horizon from your perspective? We don't. In fact, we're only at about a 25% risk of recession in our projections, um, and that's carrying into 2020. Okay. So if you don't really think that these headlines are going to do anything in the long run to affect your thesis, wouldn't you be buying we like, are, in wait, fact. Okay, so 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 during any of these dips, when people say, "Oh my God, Robert Lighthizer says that getting a trade deal with China is a big if sell," then you're saying buy. We're buyers again, being situational to the client, and we want to understand their situation, understand what they're looking for. But generally speaking, yes, we're buyers on dips. Uh, part what in particular. Pardon me? What in particular are you focusing on? Thank you on? for asking. I was going there. Uh, what we would be recommending to clients is still the large cap U.S. equities. Uh, that's been our thesis through the end of 18, continues to be in 2019. Uh, we like that space. From an asset allocation perspective, we're not completely absent developed markets or emerging market, but we would be at what we would consider neutral in terms of our targets. For those, we made some reductions last year in developed markets and EM. So we're still constructive, though, with the idea of earnings regathering, getting better towards the end of the year. Again, that 2,900 target on the S&P. We like the large cap U.S. equity names. We would be sensitive to those that have uh, more than 50% of their revenue coming from outside of the United States because we recognize there is some global slowdown. But generally speaking, U.S. large caps is where So that sounds like, so how, how about tech? Like in, in this studio, uh, we like tech. We like sure. the FANG stocks. And we noticed, obviously, that uh, during the market run, the FANG stocks uh, really led the market. Then conversely, on the way down in the fourth quarter last year, led the market down. Now having a strong rebound in 2019. Where are you guys in terms of your relative weighting of, of, of tech? For our clients, we're pretty much balanced. It, kind of at target for tech. We're not overweighting technology. Uh, we do like those big names. Some of the FANG stocks are in our portfolios, uh, but we haven't moved to an overweight position with respect to, to really any of the major sectors. Here's another way to ask the question. Uh, do you think that tech will continue to lead shares up? Because they've been the real driver. Uh, this year on the way up. They were driver last year on the way down. Are they going to continue to be the leader here? Sure. Uh, I would agree with that. Yes. So they led down. They're leading us back out. Uh, the interesting thing about technology and generally speaking about technology for us, most of those companies are on the right side of change. The companies may have company specific issues, but they're not just leave, leading the stock market higher right now. They, they're leading industries and, and making changes to, to industries that we believe are impactful long term. They're again, getting our clients to think longer term, then yes, absolutely, these technology companies would be something to invest in. Very interesting. There's lots, lots of places, you know, given that the market's up 11% this year, I think people are really trying to figure out uh, where to go next. Uh, Chad Aviet, uh, Director of Investments for Huntington Private Banking, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's sort of interesting to me uh, how many people are saying that recession uh, is is coming close to us and then everybody else saying, what are you guys talking about? Yes. Everything's just fine. I mean, the polarization there is really dramatic. And I do have to wonder, uh, you know, is there some sort of bigger risk that people aren't seeing? Or uh, are, are some people just so scared of the 2008 financial crisis still that they are uh, still unable to see something that is positive? 
Yeah, interesting. I don't think I think that was ten years ago, but yet it's still in people's psyches. It was it was a painful it was a painful event ten years ago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.